0: Thank you for the good singing this evening. Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2. This is a rich passage that speaks so well of our great salvation through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The title of the message is Blotting Out the Handwriting of Ordinances. We'll come to that Passage or to that verse here in just a few moments, there in verse 14, where we see that particular phrase used, and we'll talk a little bit more about the meaning and why Paul would use that expression. But let's begin by laying a little bit of background regarding this great epistle, the epistle to the Colossians. Colossae is a city in what we would know as Asia Minor, Turkey. Uh, You can see there to the uh, south and west of the uh, peninsula there of Asia Minor. And you see Colossae and nearby is Laodicea and then uh, Hierapolis, Ephesus, all down in that region. The church at Colossae began during Paul's three-year ministry at Ephesus in Acts 19. Paul himself was not the one who planted the church, but it was as a result of his ministry at Ephesus that a man by the name of Epaphras got saved, and then he, it appears, was the one who God used to plant the church. And we can derive that from Colossians 2 and verse 1, as well as chapter 1 and verses 5 through 7. But as any church does especially a first-century church, especially with a church of a lot of first-generation believers, having been saved out of, in some cases, Jewish legalism, in other cases, being saved out of Gentile paganism and its various forms, there were certainly some challenges that this church faced. We know that there was also Gnosticism. Gnosticism hasn't really gone away completely. It is one of those sins, one of those false religions, false teachings that has kind of been repackaged, reformulated, remarketed, and it seems to rear its ugly head century after century, generation after generation. Gnosticism, in its basic teachings, would say that matter is evil. So, therefore, If matter is evil and the spirit is good, then it would deny the deity of Jesus Christ. His humanity, his incarnation would have meant that he took on evil. The body in and of itself was evil. That Jesus would not have died on the cross in human flesh, shedding human blood. So there's obviously a clear denial to the deity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, and his true essence as the second person of the trinity, god in the flesh. They also had this idea of a secret or a higher knowledge. That secret or higher knowledge could come from within because the spirit is good. It could also be derived from emanating sources. Who emanated, oh, through mysticism, through some sort of ascetic type of experience or mystical type of experience. Gnosticism has its form in today's world where the body can be something that you are not truly identified with. You know where this is going. Gnosticism has this idea that you can be born into the wrong body. The body is in of itself bad. But your true identity is that spirit down inside of you that you have to somehow bring forward to be your authentic self. So now we even have these people out there who claim to be two spirit beings. It's just unbelievable, right? But Gnosticism is ultimately a looking within, trying to attain some higher secret knowledge that might even involve some mysticism, some spiritism, some spiritual world that's emanating some force, and we can tap into it, but you have to know the secret code, so to speak. You have to have the higher knowledge. You have to be within the certain group. And so on and so forth. And again, it manifests itself in different ways. But that's some of what was going on in its basic forms in Colossae that the church was dealing with. So Epaphras had his hands full, didn't he? He has a young pastor planting this church. He goes to Rome in Romans 4, and he consults with Paul. Good idea. <laughs> Epaphras went to the Apostle Paul to get some counsel to get some advice on how to deal with this challenge to the church, from the Jewish legalism to this Gnosticism and the pagan influences. I mean, these are first-generation believers, saved, but having to, obviously, in their progressive sanctification, having to overcome some of these, can I say, sinful baggages or besetting sins or weights that even Hebrews 12 will speak of. And we're thankful that God continues to work on us as believers. We're all at different places in our sanctification. And there's patience and long-suffering that we have to bear with one another. And sometimes there's chastening. And I know that sometimes it involves even what we do not want to ever have to do, but sometimes is necessary, and that is church discipline. But there's all of these ways in which God is continuing to do his work to make us in our progressive sanctification, what we already are positionally in Christ. And God loves the church. God loves his people. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. He desires our sanctification. He desires our good works. He desires us to lay up treasures in heaven, to seek first the kingdom of God and set our affection on things above, and to be more and more Christ-like in our Christian life. So we see in Colossians 2, in this passage, we see Paul's great desire for the doctrinal understanding of these people. Paul is writing from prison in Rome. He has given Epaphras, no doubt, some advice as to what he should do as he goes back and he leads, he pastors, he shepherds these people and all these challenges. And Paul then pens a letter Paul hasn't actually been to this church that we know of up to this point. But he is burdened for the church. They have become a church as a result of Epaphras and Epaphras' salvation under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. So Paul has a burden for these people. He has a desire for their doctrinal understanding. And there's going to be several here that we'll just touch on briefly. Each of them could be a separate sermon In and of themselves, but let's begin in verse 11, where he deals with the circumcision of the flesh. We know circumcision as a actual physical act. It's practiced, of course, in most cases. Um, We had that, of course, with our boys. There's a physical, uh, fleshly, a carnal, if I can say, aspect to that, in the sense of there is a putting away of flesh that could attract bacteria and disease there has been actual health implications studies that have shown the benefits of this but this is not the necessary necessarily the physical act of circumcision that Paul is referencing circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant was picturing the putting away of the sinful flesh the circumcision of the hearts in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, of the sinful flesh, and, the putting, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's speaking to salvation in the picture that circumcision is of salvation. Now, there are some who have taken this passage and they have tried to say then, okay, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, we know that, yes. There was an actual physical act, became part of the Mosaic law, eight days. But there was a picture of the spiritual that God really wants us to get, that God really wants his people to understand. That the circumcision of the hearts, the spiritual circumcision, the putting away of the flesh, in the spiritual sense, is really what God wants us to know and to understand. But there are some who then say, okay, then verse 12 then speaks of baptism. So the new sign of the new covenant is water baptism. So some even go so far as to say that we should be baptizing babies. And then we'll often use this passage. Water baptism is the replacement Of The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision in the New Testament, the new covenant, it's water baptism, and they'll even go so far as to say baby baptism. I dealt with a family in our Christian school, and we sat in the interview, and I said, you have to understand, as we begin to talk, I said, you have to understand, we do not believe that the sign of the covenant is baby baptism, we don't believe in baptizing babies. And we agreed that that was not going to be an issue. We were not going to teach that in our school. They were not going to make that an issue. Fast forward a few years, the daughter is in a Bible class, and she begins to argue with the teacher about the sign of the New Covenant. Sure enough, in my inbox that afternoon is a long email from this dad. And I emailed him back. (laughs) And I said, Mr. So-and-so, if you remember a few years ago in our Interview, Our application interview, entrance interview, we talked about this, that we don't believe that the sign of the new covenant is baby baptism, water baptism, okay? And so we have been clear about that. We have agreed that that was the position we were going to teach from, and we were not going to make it a point of contention. And I said, you probably are referencing Colossians chapter number two. And so on and so forth. Sure enough, I get an email back. And he was very gracious. He was very nice. He said, yes, Pastor Brent, I know. We agreed to this. And yes, we believe this. (laughs) And I said, okay, we can agree to disagree. And we're going to move forward. We're going to continue to teach what we believe. And you're not going to make it an argument. And everything was fine from then on. It was fine. Now, there were other issues that came up later. But it had nothing to do with this. But some argue for that. But let's look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. He was just talking about spiritual circumcision. He's talking about spiritual baptism. The placing of us as believers in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Baptizo, dipping, placing us in Christ. This is really not a reference to water baptism. I realize that some can take that, and I know that some make reference to Romans 6. I believe that verse 12 is referring to the Holy Spirit baptism, the placing of the believer in Christ. As Noah and his family went into the ark and God sealed the ark, sealed the door, shut the door. So we are placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we are in Christ, Holy Spirit baptism. Okay, I believe that's what verse 12 is teaching and he is teaching them this as well. That spiritual baptism is the placing of the believer in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Water baptism then pictures Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And it pictures the baptism of the Spirit, the placing of us in Christ. And it's a public identification of that person who has placed their faith and trust in Christ. They are now publicly demonstrating And identifying themselves with the church. So it is a public demonstration of one's faith in Christ. Water baptism does not save. It is not necessary for salvation. But spiritual baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as verse 12 teaches, we are buried with him in baptism. We are placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. So he goes on, he says, in in his desire for their doctrinal understanding and dealing with these challenges of Jewish legalism and the pagan mysticism and Gnosticism and all that, he then goes to verse 13, he deals with quickening, which refers to life-giving, where once we were dead in our sins, through faith in Christ, God makes us alive in him. And you being dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So we see his the quickening, the life-giving power of God. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see forgiveness of sins, the end of verse 13, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Forgiveness of sins. Upon confession and faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven. But notice the phrase, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. This is a certificate of debt. Now, some of the young people, they don't understand this because they haven't bought a house. (laughs) They haven't bought a car. They may have certain contracts or something that they've had a little bit of uh, experience with maybe learning this in school, but you get those mortgage papers and you have a certificate of debt. I don't know if any of you have paid off a house. I'm assuming some of you at some point have paid off a house and you have now had that mortgage, that debt removed. The idea here is of a certificate of debt and literally the ink is wiped off the page. Washed with the blood of the lamb. Where once our sins... We're crimson red, now we are white as snow. I remember learning how to type on an electronic typewriter. Some of you are like, what is that? You know. And then I, in my senior year, I got to actually learn how to type on a keyboard. Yes, we had computers in that day. I know I just came off the ark with Noah just a few years ago. But we began learning how to type with an electronic typewriter, and we had this little Paper. I don't know what it was. This little glossy, clear, something, correction tape. And we would, if we made a mistake, we had to go back, line up, put that in, we had hit that key again, and it would remove that ink. Certificate of debt, wiped clean. Then he continues, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. He goes another step further. And he says, this certificate of debt wasn't about money. Yes, there's contracts, there's mortgages, there's different ways in which money is involved. And there's a paper and there's a certificate. And yes, there's a wiping of that clean as the debt is paid. But he applies it to what? A spiritual debt of sin. And he goes a step further with this illustration. And he says, this paper this certificate of debt was a list of our sins and it was not uncommon at a crucifixion for a a thief a criminal excuse me the one being crucified for their sins to be placed above their heads this is what they are guilty of and he's saying that certificate of debt is wiped clean and it's posted where where does he say it's posted took it out of the way, nailing it to whose cross? His cross. He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It's incredible. It makes us want to get on our knees right now and say hallelujah, as we just sang. A debt that we could not pay, and it was a debt of sin. It wasn't just a dollar debt. It wasn't just an accumulating interest On top of a payment that we can't make, this was a sin debt that we could not do enough. Our good works are filthy rags. We could not pay the debt. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And it's nailed to his cross. Incredible. Paul is continuing this in verse 15. Victory over sin and the devil. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. He has, can I, can I say this with all respects? He has a parade, a victory parade. Declaring his triumph over sin. I don't know if you, if you I personally find, this is going to sound really bad. I personally find like Macy's parade and the Christmas parades. I personally find them kind of boring. I don't really enjoy watching them. I'm sorry if I offended anybody there, but we might turn them on in the background while we're doing something else, but we really don't get into, I know some people, 11 o'clock, Thanksgiving morning, or whatever time it starts, we're just not into that. But I did enjoy watching 2010, 2012, and 2014, the Giants championship parades. But the idea of parades, the idea of parades, we'll talk about that later, the idea of parades, of triumph. What does a championship team do? We were down in Indianapolis when the Colts won their Super Bowl in what was it, 2007. It was the season 2006, when in 2007, and we turned on the TV, and I mean, Indianapolis was going bonkers over the Colts winning the, the Super Bowl. We're, we're used to those kinds of championship parades. This is a parade. He's making reference to the Roman generals coming back with the spoils of battle, sometimes even with slaves tied. But what's the illustration? Jesus Christ is declaring victory over sin, death, and the grave. And can I say, in a sense, we, by his grace and his mercy, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, We are in the parade, not as slaves, but as having been freed from sin, as trophies of God's grace. And we don't deserve it, but there's, even in this picture, the Lord Jesus Christ pointing to us and saying, these are my bought ones. These are the ones that I have saved. That's incredible thought. Paul is really helping them through their understanding as they're struggling with their sins of the past and what God has saved them from. In this church at Colossae, first generation Christians, baggage from their past, saved people. Yes, there are some in that church who needed to be saved, of course, but they're struggling. Jewish legalism, the ceremonial law, they're struggling with the pagan idolatry and some of the wicked sins they got saved out of, this Gnosticism. These various challenges, different baggages, and what is he doing? Keep, he keeps bringing them point after point after point, illustration after illustration of the glorious saving grace of Jesus Christ. Their sins are forgiven. They have been blotted out. Christ has declared the victory over sin and the devil, over sin and the grave. And then he comes down to verse 16. And we don't have... Much time here, but just quickly in verses 16 through 23, we see this freedom in Christ. He says, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days. He's talking about freedom from legalism, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. He has saved you. Those things couldn't save you. They pointed to the fact that you could not keep the law. The ceremonial law pictured what Christ would do on the cross All of that is fulfilled in Christ. Yes, the moral law is still in place. The ceremonial law and all of its pictures and illustrations and symbols fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So then why are you trying to live the Christian life? Why are you trying to have sanctification in that which never could save you in the first place? Freedom from sin, freedom from the legalism. There's a whole lot more we could say about this. But the legalism of the Judaizers only brought bondage. The legalism that has to do with salvation is the idea that you can do enough good works, keep enough rules in order to earn your salvation. But Paul is going beyond that. He's, yes, saying that is wrong, but he's also saying you don't progress in your sanctification by legalism. Now, I don't want to get too carried away here. But we have rules. We have boundaries. There are fences. There are guardrails that we put up in our lives. And we can argue all day long as to where the fence should be and where the guardrails should be. But we have to have boundaries. We have to. Can I just give one illustration? We have to have boundaries in physical relationships. There has to be some guidelines. There has to be some places where it stops. How far? And there's men who will go a lot further than where the women will go. And there's women who are happy to accommodate wherever the man wants to go. There has to be boundaries, right? You have to establish those. You have to establish those in a dating relationship or things can get out of hand real quick. We have to have boundaries in entertainment, don't we? We, we don't just hand a smartphone to our kids and say, okay, whatever. We put boundaries. We do it for a lot of other things, for physical safety. We can argue all day long about the boundaries. But bottom line is, The props, the boundaries, the guardrails, the fences, they don't ultimately make you holy. They're there to help us, to show us, to warn us, to give signs and warnings, and to say, okay, stay away. But where does our sanctification ultimately come from? It comes from the Lord, our relationship with God. I went to a Bible college with lots of rules. I'm thankful for the rules. I didn't like them all at the time, some of them were silly. They got rid of a lot of those. But I find it's interesting, Emily and Chandler are down there, and I still hear kids complaining about the rules. And I'm thinking, you have it so much easier than what I did. So much easier. But why? We always want to complain about the rules. But the rules, if we depend on them, won't make us holy. They couldn't save us, and they won't sanctify us. But they're good warnings. They're good boundaries. I might put my fence five feet from the pond. You may put yours 50 feet from the pond. But we're both after the same thing, right? We don't want anybody drowning in that pond. We have to have some boundaries, but we don't depend on those. If a person just says, okay, I've got a fence out there next to the pond, but never watches their child, never supervises their child, lets their child take a stepladder out and set it by the fence, on and on we could go with the illustration. What is that parent doing? They're neglecting The relationship and rules without relationship breed rebellion. So we have legalism that can't save, legalism that can't sanctify, but it doesn't mean that it's just libertarianism, and we just throw all rules and boundaries to the wind, and we just do whatever we want to do, and we always have the safety net of grace. right? That's not the way to live either. Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid So what is he saying? You have freedom from sin. There are boundaries that God has put in your life for your good. And you don't depend on those rules and regulations. You ultimately are depending on the Lord. Just like you trusted him for your salvation, you trusted him for your sanctification. And he talks about all these different legalistic things, I wish we had time to go into them, but then he also talks about freedom from false worship. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increased, increaseth with the increase of God. is it interesting he references the body as an illustration? Because what are they being threatened by, pressured by? The Gnosticism this mysticism, this cloak of religion and this false humility, pride of the Gnostics. And they claim to have this secret knowledge and they claim to worship angels and intrude into those things which he hath not seen, this mysticism, but he says what? They're vainly puffed up in their fleshly minds and they can cause doubt they can cause the joints and the bands all of the ministry of the body he's using a physical illustration to speak of the spiritual body that with all of that antagonism and attacks by the Gnostics what can that false teaching do if believers begin to listen to that stuff and kind of toy with it. And kind of say, yeah, and kind of begin to hang out with those people who talk about all the time and begin to question things and begin to cause various doubts. What happens to that believer? They become defeated. They become doubtful. They become discouraged. And they're no longer growing in their Christian life. They're no longer growing in their sanctification. They're questioning now and their faith has gotten weak and their growth is being stunted. And Paul is saying, don't let that happen. You're free from that false worship that you used to be involved in. Don't let those doubters, don't let those mystics, don't let those Gnostics, those false teachers cause doubt and discouragement and defeat in your life and stunt your growth and prevent you from having the liberty and the exercise of your liberty in Christ. And then he finally concludes in verses 20 through 23 with freedom from sin. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ... From the rudiments of the world, why? As though living in the world are ye subject to ordinances. Touch not, taste not, handle, handle not, which are all to perish with the with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed to show wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Ultimately, what's he saying? He's saying the false teachers. They put on this cloak of religion, they put on this false humility, and really They're practicing in all kinds of sin. This religiosity is a cloak, a cover for the selfish, self-centered, sensual indulgences of their flesh that are what really is going on behind the scenes. Isn't that what we see with false religion? Masquerading. Sometimes even have some decent dietary laws, moral laws, at least on the surface, right? But inside, full of dead man's bones. Wicked filth and immorality. Fraud. Many types of self or selfish, self-indulgences. Sexual sins. Then we can get into the covetousness and the greed and the money. That often is involved, that often goes together. And Paul is saying, don't. Become a doubter, and get discouraged, and get defeated. You've been saved from these things. Don't let their false humility, their masquerading of all of these types of religiosity confuse you, discourage you, and cause you to doubt. That you then forget the great doctrines of your salvation that he was reminding them of. The putting away of the flesh, baptized in Christ, placed in Christ, given life, quickening, forgiveness of sins, that handwriting of ordinances, that certificate of debt, wiped clean, nailed to his cross. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might made the righteousness of God in him and victory over sin and the devil and freedom in Christ from the legalism, from the false worship. And, from sin. and that is what Paul was writing to the Colossians and by the inspiration of God and preservation of his word declares to us tonight that we might have freedom in Christ, not freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, and indulge in our flesh and our selfish, covetous, lustful desires, no, but freedom in Christ and freedom from sin that ultimately gives the peace and the joy and the satisfaction and points to the heavenly glories of being in the very presence of God in the flesh, finally being absent, being gone. And we will sing hallelujah like we sang tonight, but in the glories of heaven with other blood-bought saints, washed in the blood of the Lamb with the white garments on, and we give him all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. In just a few moments, we'll observe the Lord's table. May we once again be truly grateful for these truths that we were reminded of tonight. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Forgiveness of sin, putting away of the flesh, baptized, placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, freedom from the legalism, false worship, Lord, all these glories of our salvation, Lord, may we once again be truly grateful, and Lord, may it motivate us to go out and to share the gospel with others and to live a life of holiness and that's pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you will prepare our hearts even now for the observance of the Lord's table, this memorial, this time, Lord, of self-examination, this time, Lord, of remembrance, and Lord, I pray that you will help us to go out from here to love you more, to serve you better. In Jesus' name we pray.